Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you that there are myriads upon myriads of good deeds that you've done for us and for your people. Lord, if we were to count your good deeds, all the books in the world could not contain them. Praise you, God. Amen. So, this has been uh, cooking in my brain and in my heart for a while. Um, this is something that I've talked with. A, it's come up time and time again for myself uh, in my entire Christian walk. Um, and it comes up time and time again in my short time of discipling people and, and my long time of being discipled. Um, so, remembering as a spiritual discipline, and we'll kind of talk about what that is. So, first, the outline. We're going to go over, uh, I love that Stephen's message really set mine up today. Uh, you could say it's a great supplement or complement to this message. Um, he spoke of a pattern of worship, and I'm going to talk to you about a pattern of remembrance and uh, what that means. Then we're going to go through a story about a king and his people, um, specifically uh, the king of Israel. And then we're going to talk about spiritual disciplines and how that relates to remembrance, right? Because we all want to be disciplined, right? <laughs> so, pattern of remembrance. Um, first, there, there's some things that, that God lays out and we can see specifically in the Old Testament um, because God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that he does things the same way also. So in the Old Testament, he lays out these uh, ways that we can remember. Okay, um, I'm going to lay out how these are like really one and the same things right here. Um, first off is, is he gives us signs, and another word for this is symbols, right? We, I know some of us are familiar when we're talking about covenant theology, um, that when a covenant's made or, or an agreement, a contract is made uh, in that time period, um, one of the things that was done when the covenant or contract was made was they were given signs and symbols. Uh, the most readily available example of this we can see today is, is marriage, the sign and symbol of marriage is one of them, the most famous one, the wedding ring, right? Uh, a constant reminder, or if you forgot that you were married, <laughs> you get to remember each time you look at your wedding ring, right? Or uh, if you're like me, obsessively just fiddling with it all the time. <laughs> um, so it's a reminder. It's to help you remember and to help others remember that you're married, right? It's a sign to everyone. Because it's important. It's because it's, it's a contract that you want everyone to know has been made. So if you look at Genesis 9, 12 through 15, uh, this is just an example. Um, there's tons of them in scripture of signs. But uh, if you want to, real quick, turn to Genesis 9. I think it should be up there. I'm going to turn to it as well. Genesis 9, 12. And God said, this is the sign 
of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. This is a rainbow, by the way. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And it goes on and on, and we could talk about this chapter alone all day. Um, But we see a few things here, key things. The sign's there um, so that people remember, right? And it's not just any people, okay? It's not just... Uh, it's not just Kyle's supposed to remember that God's not going to flood the earth again, right? It's all people. It's God himself is going to remember his covenant and his promise. And that's a big deal. We see this, uh, again, like the marriage covenant and plenty of other places. So if you want to do some homework, go through and look for signs in the Old Testament, signs and symbols of covenants. All right, monuments, or memorials, or a giant pile of rocks. (laughs) One and the same thing. That's something also that you see in Scripture. So let's turn to Joshua 4. So Joshua 4, 6 through 7. That this may be a sign among you. See, sign and, and this memorial or monument thing are really one and the same. Right? The context of this is Israel crossing the Jordan. Okay? This is a big deal. They're, they have spent 40 years in a wilderness. Some of us have a hard time camping outside for one night. Some of us, we we say this is a hot day, okay? Imagine being in the desert for 40 years. 40 years you've been brought out of slavery and you you were promised a land and because of your sin, uh, you've been waiting 40 years. A generation has passed. People who were anticipating this moment died and didn't get to see it. And so they crossed the Jordan, an image of Israel passing through the Red Sea, right? Coming out of slavery and then coming out of the wilderness. That's the context. And the Lord's speaking to Joshua. He says, build a pile of rocks, <laughs> right? Stone upon his shoulder. And, you know, according to the, the tribes, he says, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, 
What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be for the people of Israel a monument, a memorial, a sign forever. So, a memorial. Then we see the Word of God, right? That's another way that God's put in our lives for us to remember things. Please turn with me to Jeremiah 31. Verse 33. For this is how the for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And turn with me to 2 Corinthians 3 3. We're going to be doing a lot of scripture today. That means less time of me talking, which is always better. And you show, and remember, this is New Testament. A good way to look at it is the Old Testament in the context of the revealed Christ. Okay? It's not some separate thing. Um, there's so many references to the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you, all the new Christians started out with the Old Testament. They didn't have these letters written to them uh, right off the bat, right? They became Christians because they saw it in the Old Testament. They saw Christ revealed. They saw the Old Testament in the context of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're seeing here. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. So what's Paul referring to here? He's referring to the Ten Commandments, right? Written on tablets. God's Word summed up in His law. It's God's heart. And he's written it not just on stones for us to remember. When you become a Christian, he writes it on your heart for you to remember. He's not going to let you go without remembering him. So, there's a pattern here. God wants us to remember, okay? And we're going to talk about what he wants us to remember and how. All right? He's given us these signs. It's important to him that we remember stuff. You know, this is a little speculative, but, you know, um, there's some good research behind it. And uh, it's not just a coincidence that the Israelites were in Egypt. At that time, it was the epicenter of education and the first written language. Okay, 
Hebrew is one of, if not the first, phonetic alphabet. They were one of the first cultures to write down words, to write books. That's a big deal, right? Like, God designed it so that his people would remember stuff. They told stories. Stephen talked today about, um, uh, you know, in worship, we're supposed to remember things. And we'll get more into, into that as a spiritual discipline, okay? But this is important to God. It's, like, super important. He's not just like we're going to uh, be doing new things all the time. He wants us to remember what he's done for us in the past. So a story about a king and his people. Here's some more big chunks of scripture. Judges. If you want to know how not to remember, read Judges. A people without a king. So, Judges 2. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. This is like right after Joshua, right? They're in the promised land. This whole thing they've been anticipating, and God's like, make a memorial so they never forget, right? Moses has written the first five books of the Bible. He's given them the stone tablets, God's commandments, right? They have signs and symbols and seals, They have a pattern for the temple. And they take the possession of the land, and they serve the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. So they're doing pretty good, one generation, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So these are the people who saw it. These are the people who walked through the Jordan, right? And they saw... God lead them into victory after victory after victory to secure the promised land. And it says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of God, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of the inheritance in Timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. They died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil. So forget the the paragraph breaks in your Bibles, okay? When this was written, it was written in one scroll, one book. No paragraph breaks. They weren't to that point yet. And so they did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and Ashroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. 
as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So again, there's nothing has changed about these people's attitudes or their ways, right? They still don't know God's goodness. They still don't remember that. And the Lord sent them saviors. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them, and they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked. So more turning away from their fathers. After all of that, more forgetting. Saying their fathers had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he had saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt with, than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people has transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by, by them whether they will take care and walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So here you see a people without a king. Um, judges is full of these people saying like, you know, they, they go through this, this time where it seems like nations are crushing them, okay? No one's seen oppression like this before. They're being oppressed. They're, be, they're losing their identity as a nation. Um, it's not going well for them, okay? They have no standing, no authority, no promised kingdom anymore. The lands that the Lord gave them had been taken from them. The lands that all those people in the wilderness looked forward to, that God said, remember what I've done and brought you into this land, they forgot about how big of a deal that was and how special this land was, and they lost it because of that. And they said, well, you know, it wouldn't be this bad if we just had a king like every other nation, right? So they said, give us a king. So what does God do? In his ultimate goodness, what was this here? He gives them a king, right? He gives them exactly what they want uh, with the stipulation. So let's read the stipulation, First Samuel. We're just doing a survey of the Old Testament right now. Verse 10. You want a king, guys, so Samuel, tell them what, what they want. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of that king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be horsemen and to run before his chariots. 
So what was the most recent chariot-wielding army, the best chariot-wielding army uh, that the Israelites encountered? The Egyptians. What happened to those guys? They were swallowed up by the sea. And he's saying, you want a king? This is what your sons will encounter. They'll be in chariots as well, just as the Egyptians were. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that, you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, your king, whom you had chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. I didn't count this, but it's like seven sometimes he says, this king's going to take something from you. This is not a king that's righteous who gives and does not hold back. This is a king who takes, takes, takes. You have a tithe to this king, a tax to this king. And it's not going to benefit you that you give this tithe. You're going to lose your sons and your daughters. You'll be slaves. And you'll cry out to God because of this king you chose for yourself and he won't answer you. Why would God answer him in this way? Right? Why would He gives them what they want, a king, right? Uh, but why is this king so treacherous? Why does he mention the king that you chose? So let's turn to Deuteronomy 17. We're going back in time here to see if God said anything before this about kings. So he gave, he gave the judges or the Israelites and judges uh, what they wanted, a king like the rest of the nations. They've seen these kings. They were under oppression by these kings, right? They knew what these kings were like, and they wanted that, I guess. I don't know. But God said he had a different idea of what a king would be like. So, Deuteronomy 17, 13 through 20. And all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and you dwell in it. Okay? So this is really important here. Um, they've crossed the Jordan into the promised land, and they're starting to take the promised land uh, you know, for God, right? And they possess it, right? Wrong. Actually, the tribes have done a really bad job of possessing the land. They did not drive out the Canaanites and the Amalekites and the people who were supposed to be driven out. I think Judah was the only only tribe that like did a good job of that. 
They didn't do what God, they haven't possessed this land like God told them to. He said, possess it and I'll give you a king that I choose for you. I'll give you a good king. So they've gone in, they think they possess it, they think they've earned or deserve a king, even though they haven't been obedient to God. So, I will set a king over me like all, I'll set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. So this is what they'll say. And you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So he's like, go for it. If you've done what I've commanded, and, and I'll choose him for you, even. You don't have to go through all that worry, and it'll be great. Go for it. You get a king. You get a king. Okay. <laughs> you may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself. He doesn't want a kingdom of chariots and horses. He doesn't want a kingdom like all the other nations. Chariots and horses are for going beyond and trying to uh, extend your kingdom beyond what you're called to. It's an oppressive uh, aspect of the military, right? It, and horses require so much money and effort. You know, you have to take from your people to keep horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He's saying, don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to their kings. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Does anyone remember uh, Solomon? Or Lamech that we talked about today who had multiple wives? Nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. Again, Solomon. And he sits on the throne of his kingdom. He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him. And he shall read in it all the days of his life. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law. And these statutes. And doing them. This that this heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This isn't just for that one king, but for his children as well. So this is what, he, what they need. They need a king like this. They need a king who totally and completely remembers and is devoted to God's law. Could you imagine uh, if you were to get a job and they're like, okay, first you have to completely write a copy of our manual and never do anything that's not in our manual. Most of us would be like, forget it, I'll get another job, right? Uh, we have a ton of training videos at my work and Maybe I shouldn't confess this or not. But they're very long and very boring, and I can usually pass the test without even paying attention to it because it's just common sense stuff. So usually I don't pay attention to the training videos, right? Uh, <laughs> but going beyond this, the king's supposed to copy the training videos, right? 
He's supposed to reproduce it, and then he's got to test over it to make sure he did a good job. This is what the king's supposed to be. So let's look at the fruit of, of a king who obeys like this. Psalm 145. So David was a king who was appointed by God, or chosen by God. He was a king that God called righteous. And the fruit of that kind of a kingship, David did the whole writing the law, making a copy of the law, right? He remembered God all the time. And we see this in the fruit of his psalms. So if you go through the psalms, most of them are just him recalling God's good deeds. If you want to know uh, what should motivate you to worship, like Stephen said earlier today, uh, it's remembering what God has done. And David knew this. Psalm 145, 19. He fulfills the, de the desire of those who fear him. Remember, it said, if you write a copy of the word of God, you'll learn to fear God. David's done this, and he, and he can say for sure that he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. And he hears the cries of those, he hears their cries and saves them. This is to juxtapose or put it up against or, or compare it to these Israelites during the time of the judges who wanted a king, and he said, you'll get that king who's unrighteous like all the other nation's kings, uh, and he, God won't hear your cry. But if you have a king who fears God, he'll hear your cry. That's a big deal. We, are, we live in a land uh, where people are always trying to oppress us, Right? We're trying to oppress ourselves all the time. We are slaves to our sin. And we need a Savior. We need someone to hear our cry. If you're a Christian longer than a day, you've cried out to God, hopefully. And if you want, to, if you want Him to hear your cry, uh, you better fear Him. You better remember His law and know His ways. He's not going to hear your cry... Uh, how many people cry out to God uh, who have never once even cared about his law and they think he's just some genie that you can make a wish for and so they cry out to God in that way they don't really they never really wanted to be saved So these Israelites said they wanted a savior, they wanted a redeemer, they wanted a deliverer. But if they were obedient to remember God and his ways and his works, this is the surprise part. They already had a king that was doing this. They already had a savior. God brought them out of Egypt. God brought them out of the wilderness. God was with their judges who saved them time and time again. 
It was God who went out and won their battles for them. It was Christ incarnate who met Joshua and said, I'm going to go out before you as your commander. They already had the king, and yet they were crying out for some king like the nations. And so when we see the story of David, David, by writing the law of God again, by repeating this, uh, you know, copying the word of God, he got to see we already had a God the whole time. So who am I to be a God? Who am I to ask for a tithe from these people? Who am I to rule over these people? And how often do we think we are good kings and people who can rule and people who deserve to, to make commandments and laws? How often do we command someone to do something that's against God's commandments? So, that's the thing I'm, I want to get across. There's, we already have a king, and we need to remember that king. So what are we remembering? We're remembering our king. So when you look at remembrance as a discipline, when you look at the signs and the, the monuments, the piles of stone around us, and we ask, what is this for? And we read God's word, and we're like, why are we reading God's word? It's to remember our king. It's to remember who's going to save us from our enemies. And that's a big deal. So how do we do this? Um, this list of spiritual disciplines, if we go to that slide, was gotten out of the book Celebration of Discipline. Uh, it's in our library if you want to read it. Um, I recommend it. And I also looked at some other books with very, very similar lists. So this is pretty common across the Christian uh, domain of spiritual disciplines. So let's go through them one by one. We've got time, right? We'll go through them one by one and just talk about how they affect our remembrance or how remembrance works through them. So meditation. Uh, in some cultures, some spiritual religions and, and whatnot, uh, meditation is like a clearing of the mind where you try and like quiet your mind and not think of anything. That's bogus. God gave us minds. And uh, he gave us the ability to think, and that's really great. So think. Just don't think about um, useless things. Think about useful things. And the most useful thing you can think about is God and his works. Uh, this is the, the one that um, kind of sparked this most, this first discipline of meditation is one that like really uh, filled my heart to give this talk. Because this is something I do frequently, and I tell people to do it all the time. If you have anxiety, fear, pride, unforgiveness, all these things, uh, doubt that God loves you, if you just remember back to the times that God had, like you knew for sure God loved you, if you think about those times, you'll know he'll, love, he'll show his love to you again, that he still loves you. I do this frequently. I think, I think about the times that uh, the Lord has, has met me in worship in such a great way. Um, I remember the time that I was first baptized in the Holy Spirit. I was a part of a home church. 
uh, I was nine years old, right? And my parents were never shy about saying, like, the things of the Holy Spirit are for today. God is, uh, they always showed me God's love and all that stuff. And we're part of this home church, and we're worshiping together. And normally, uh, I thought worship was fun and stuff, and it was, you know, up till this point. Um, that day, as a nine-year-old, the Lord showed me his love in such a real, such a real tangible way uh, that I don't understand how a nine-year-old could comprehend that. I felt more loved in that moment by God than I ever felt by my parents. And my parents really loved me. And I wept. And I think about that frequently when I'm discouraged or uh, downtrodden or having a season of dryness in worship or whatever. I think about that frequently. Um, and in preparation of this message, I, I actually uh, talked to a few people. I talked to Christiana, uh, Nathan, and Anvesh, and asked them basically, like, are there moments in your lives like this that you think about frequently? And uh, them being so many years in the Lord, it didn't take them long to rattle off lots of examples. And I came out of that super encouraged. So not only were they encouraged by those thoughts, I, now I was encouraged by those thoughts. So when we go into prayer, this is another thing. Like when you pray, you're praying to God, and uh, usually you're either like glorifying His name or uh, asking for something, or you know, any type of prayer requires an acknowledgement that God has been great and is great and will be great. When we fast, we do this. When we fast, we're denying our bodies and we're saying, we're not God, we're not king. Our body is not, my body is not king of me. I save a greater king who provides me daily bread. When we study, we're studying God's ways. We're studying, uh, you know, you can read your Bible in a uh, studious way, you can read books by other Christian authors and hear their examples of what God's done or what he's doing. Um, so simplicity, this one might warrant some explanation. Simplicity is just the idea of like living a s simpler life and not getting a bunch of things. <laughs> okay, Because when we get a bunch of things, our thoughts are caught up by these things. And it makes it really difficult to remember God. If you're in love with your car or uh, you know, you've got this particular collection of things that you're always thinking about. I, I don't know, whatever you spend your time buying and keeping and hoarding, uh, you get them and you think about those things. They don't, you don't just put it in a closet. If you put it in a closet, you should probably just sell it because <laughs> why well, have it? So live a simple life that you can focus on God. Don't acquire for yourself many wives or more than one wife. 
That's too much to think about. <laughs> Don't acquire for yourself riches or horses. Uh, you know, I never owned a chariot, but I imagine the upkeep and maintenance on it is unbearable. Solitude is another one of those things. This is kind of, you can meditate while you're in solitude, but solitude is just getting away from things, getting away from people, being alone with your thoughts. That's scary in our culture. That is something so against our culture and against the millennial zeitgeist that, like, solitude's important. Uh, that's a great benefit of if you've ever been homeschooled, uh, you know, Socialize, you need to be socialized better. Uh, if you're in public school, you're never alone. And that's almost just as harmful as not getting to hang out with people. You need to have time alone. I spent lots of hours alone as a kid. And because of that, I got to think thoughts. I got to think thoughts about God and his way and his nature. I remember as a five-year-old thinking the thought, well, it seems like wrong to want to be a Christian just so I can get into heaven. You know, and there's people I know who have been Christians 30, 40 years in, in the Lord and never thought that maybe I should be Christianity more than just getting into heaven because they've never been alone with their thoughts. Submission, that's another thing that goes right against our cultural zeitgeist. Submit to someone. If you submit yourself to people and hear them say, uh, as early Christians, some of us don't have these experiences to think back to as frequently or uh, as dramatically, maybe. We don't have that practice down. But you can go find a mature Christian and be just as encouraged by their example as by your own. So submit yourself to someone and hear them when they talk to you. Service. If you're serving people, it's really hard to think that you're all that. Confession. Confession, you can say this is evangelism. This is your testimony. This is no one asked me, but I'm going to tell them anyways, and they're going to be encouraged by it. This is prophecy. Right? Confess what God's done for you. Give a praise report. Find someone today and give a praise report, whether they like it or not. They'll be encouraged by it. Worship. If this is those moments where I meditate on, on what God's done for me, I often find those moments in worship when I'm dry. And, and not just meditating on what God's done for me, I meditate on what God's done for his people. The fact that how did he find me 2,000 years removed from Christ. And he found me. And I got to hear that message. Because God loves me. And that makes me want to worship. Or I remember my sin, like Stephen also said we can do today, to encourage us to worship. I remember my sin and how wicked I am, and that God still wants me in his presence. I was meditating recently on uh, the pattern of Adam and Eve as husband and wife, and that pattern of husband and wife being an example of Christ and his church. 
And Adam and Eve in the garden were naked and unashamed. That means Christ wants us to be in his presence naked and unashamed. He wants us to be in his presence with all our sin laid out and not be ashamed of that and be totally comfortable and feel totally at, in place in worship. So if you think about thoughts like that, it'll cause you to worship. You don't have to work it up. You just have to think about God and not about yourself. Fear of man is not thoughts about God. Fear of man is thoughts about ourselves and about others. Guidance. If we remember God's ways, if, if the Israelites had read their Bibles and read Deuteronomy 17, they would not have asked for a king and asked to choose that king because they would have known what was in store for them. So seek guidance through remembering God's ways. Celebration. Uh, yesterday was my parents' anniversary, their 39th anniversary. Greg and Catherine Weistress had their 39th anniversary. And they remember, that's what an anniversary is, remembering your wedding and remembering the fact that God brought two people together to become one, and they celebrate that. A celebration without remembering something is a little silly. So, in conclusion, uh, as we come to this communion table, I just want to, the one half a sentence here, do this in remembrance of me. So when we come to the table, don't forget to remember God's goodness to you. I often meditate when I come to the communion table on while I'm watching all of these people I love uh, go up. I meditate on the fact that God brought me to this church. You, there was a time where I was uh, alone, seemingly. I didn't have a home church. I, I felt lost and alone. And God brought me to family. And when I come to the communion table and I get to watch each and every one of you walk up, I'm reminded of that. And I'm reminded that Christ did not leave me in my sin. And he will not leave me in my sin. And Christ died for me. So do this in remembrance of Christ, your King your Redeemer, your Savior. Lord, please supernaturally uh, bring to people's minds now and later today. Give them times to be alone and to contemplate you. Give them times to be amongst people, to confess what you've done for them. Bring to the remembrance your good deeds to them specifically. <laughs> Bring to them remembrance of your good deeds, Lord. And don't let them shake that off. In Jesus' name, amen.